feel like I'm missing something, but... Um, just a quick note. Um, I already said this because I think Debbie said it in the kitchen. Uh, I will miss you guys. It's been... Um, I can't tell you the gratitude, the depth of it I feel. I think some of you must feel the same thing or you wouldn't still be here, but um, it's, been a, it's been a good thing for me to do again. I, you know that I wasn't planning to teach until this book was written and now that I've started this book, there are three supplemental books that are that have grown out of it and so I thought I'd be back in the classroom a couple of years after I started. That was years ago and I'm still... So to do this was not intended, it wasn't planned. planned. Um, in some ways I wasn't looking forward to it because the book is so demanding, but it's just been a pleasure. And it, um, I, I, there have been a number of times when I've seen things, it happens as a teacher, I mean you see more and more each year. Sometimes I feel, as a good example, the Iliad for me is a good example. I, I feel like I know the Iliad as well as I know any book. I've taught that forever. and. In the year that we taught it here, that I went over it with you guys, um, I saw an order to the battles that I had not seen before. I drew it in a circle. Those of you who are here have the notes of that, and I looked at that, and I thought, how in the world could I not have seen that? Because I look at the battles, I mean, I sort of line them up, and, and yet I still hadn't quite... I had that moment, that revelation in Moby Dick. You know, I had to say, I've got to go back. I had a moment like that in the Divine Comedy, in the Purgatorio, where it said, Hold on, I just, I mean, you've been having to trip with me. Well, I, you know, when I trip and then go back and say, hold on, you guys. I, and I even saw some things with Julia Faces, you know, the, this time. So it just amazes me that as much as I've touched, taught these things, I continue to see more each year. And that's been the case in, my, um, in our work here together. So I'm grateful to you all for those moments, I mean, they wouldn't have happened if we weren't here. So, anyway, I wish you all a good, um, a good rest of spring and a good summer, and hopefully we'll see each other again in the fall. Okay. Any prayer requests? I have another granddaughter. You want us to pray for your sons? I know. <laughs> well, um, my I have a granddaughter who's been having seizures. Who's what? She's having seizures. Oh, so. Just the one that you talked about? No, no. no. <laughs> Don't tell me guys are worse. Are you, you? They're all daughters that are asking for your prayers. Do you have a pencil? What's her name? Jessica. Jessica. Let it go. I'm good. I'm good. Duck, I'm good. Anybody? Anybody else? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself, particularly in Mass this morning. How extraordinary that you emptied yourself, left your place with the Father um, to take on our nature here to atone for a sin we couldn't on our own. How deep 
our sins. That's how deep they are, or you wouldn't have had to do it. What a great gift to us. And however much we struggle with our sins and even fail with them, help us all never to forget your mercy, to, to never allow our fussing, the pride that we take to, to do things ourselves, to keep us from being grateful um, for your love and your forgiveness. Help us to bring it to all that we do in our own lives as well, particularly with each other. Um, ask a blessing on Jessica. Um, watch over her. Um, help the doctors find um, something that will um, help her, help quiet her heart. Um, as in all these cases, let her awareness of possible problems lead her to a greater faith. Let it be so for all of us. We're asked in the Mass to be everywhere and always thankful. Help us to do that most especially in the midst of struggles. Ask for a blessing on Lois. Um, help her with um, any complications. Help her to have a quiet heart. Be with um, Debbie and Bruce and Matt. Watch over Matt. Um, um, we're all children of a generation. We all grow up and um, so often what happens in our family is such a surprise. And not to look back to the Old Testament, um, sins of the Father, um, yes, we all carry them. But um, each of us is an individual in our own right and we ask for a special care for him. Um, we're also parts of a body. We are together. However much we feel like we're better than or different from, um, our differences are brought together in your body. We're made one with each other. Help us to hold on to that unity that we share. Um, ask for a blessing on Christopher and Kayla, for Christopher and his travels, for their son Liam and his first communion coming up this weekend. Let this be the beginning of an apostleship for him, a great friendship with you. Um, be with Tom and Linda and their daughter Megan, and be with um, Doc. Um, uh. Sorry, I'm missing somebody. Um, Tracy and Madison. Seen a daughter somewhere with a parent. Um, I can't remember. Um, I ask a blessing on all of us here. Bev, in her search for a job. Um, that door's open for her, please. Um, and I have a special request concerning the work we do that all that we've read become more a part of our lives. And wherever we've seen a truth or felt something open, particularly if it challenged us, um, uh, forced us to put away ways of looking and be open to new ways, help us to carry this to the world, to live it. So it's not just in our heads. That would be so for all of us. We offer these prayers in your name, um, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's do, um, I'm going to finish the four quartets, turn to 
we're short a week. Somehow, big surprise. Somehow I got thrown off on my schedule again. Um, so we would have had two more weeks to cover the last two sections, but we're going to do both of them this morning. Thankfully, the fourth section is really um, short. But let me read this. <clears throat> very, very um, brief comment here. Um, a couple of things. Uh, you know that the central image of the four quartets is the still point. This, this thing that we can't see that, that is present almost everywhere, over and over and over again. Elliot's been showing us in so many ways. Um, he does it in the image of the still point, the dance, the pyre, um, all the movements. He does it in those, what I call, apophatic moments, the, the effort to try to describe something that can't be described, or to know something that's difficult to know. There the dance is, where, I can't say where, you know. It's England now, um, and never. He constantly gives us these images of something being and not. And I've suggested that that's true for anybody who takes the spiritual life seriously because if you're with Christ, e even if we locate ourselves in time and place, we're here this morning with each other. When we get up and leave, we'll go from here to the parking lot. You know, that it's never just from here to there. We're a part of a larger world, a larger pattern, even if we can't see it. So the, the difficulty is getting past the literalism you know, that's a, a, a habit in our minds. A, it's, a, it's a way I think we have of thinking we've got control of things. You know, when so often we learn that we don't, the world sort of collapses around us. Um, constantly giving us these descriptions that locate us in a place, but in such a way that we know that even though we're there, we're not there. So part of what he's doing is helping us to enter into a mystery, because most of us don't like mysteries. The, the premise of the modern world is control. The more we know something, the more power we have through that knowledge to get control of things. And Eliot is everywhere shattering that. that it's an illusion. I mean, I don't, I, we do have control. There's a lot we have control over. What he's showing us is there's also something going on. We're a part of a mystery, and it's important never to forget that. Um, one of the major, th so the still point is the center. One of the major themes, the garden, um, the air, earth, fire, and water, the, the basic elements of our life. And as we move towards the end, remember, the, um, he, he gives great emphasis to the importance of a purifying that goes on. How important it is to purify the soul. It, it's Dante in, the, in his work. Um, we, we got a glimpse of that in the section before where he was walking through London after the bombing and this ghost meets him and, and tells him that he's going to be crowned with this thing which is a, a joke. You come to the end of your life, I remember reading that and so enjoying it. Um, to set the crown upon your lifetime's effort, first the cold friction of expiring sense. You're all too, you're all too young to know this, but Suzanne and I, Suzanne and I do, losing hair, losing our minds, walking into a bedroom and both of us staring at each other and going, and why did we come in here? You know, you, two minutes before, we, something brought us in there and two minutes later we don't even have a clue what it was. Um, everything's going. Um, Second, the conscious impotence of rage. What's the point? 
the disorders of the world were here before we came, they will be here, they will survive us. Um, it, and I, I don't think Eliot's saying, don't be critical or don't make judgments, but the impotence of rage, what's the point of going on raging about it? That's not going to make it go away. You know, we, we still have a spiritual journey. We, we may have to face a martyrdom. The martyrs do. So they, don't, they don't hide, they don't run away. And last, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and bid, the shame of motives late revealed, and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue. Um, how often so many of us think what we're doing when we're younger is really good, and then we reach a point when we're older and look back ashamed, just awful um, aware of the mistakes and the effects of them you know, that we have to bear in old age. So these are the, these are the great gifts of old age. <laughs> um, clearly, one of the effects of them is humility, that that's the gift. If we don't admit those things, how can there be any humility? We continue in arrogance, you know, like we know it all. We either look at those things ashamed and are grateful for humility because that humility is a part of the growing closer to Christ, or we stay back where we were. So those have been some of the major themes, okay? And they come into focus here at the end. Um, in section four, notice how you'll say, um, the only hope, only despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre. That is, we can, we can continue to hold on to the, the things that we're attached to the, by the fire in us, the desires. We burn for these things. I want this, I want this, I want this. It can be intellectual. It can be Faust's desire. Faust was, remember, a, a man of great intellectual capabilities. And he made that bargain with Mephistopheles. You know, he, what he wanted was intellectual things. So it doesn't just have to have be a house, a car. It can be intellectual, it can be spiritual. So we either, we either continue to burn in those desires or they get burned away. We get purified. Um, what was behind it, he says, love the intolerable shirt of flame. So just hold on to that. And then um, notice the very last word. Don't look ahead. Notice the very last word of Little Gidding, the, the word that will end the four quartets. It's the one word that ends the four quartets, and why, the why of that word, okay? So let's look at four, and um, I'll read through and we'll stop. Section four, Little Gidding. <clears throat> the dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror, of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error. The only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre, pyre, to be redeemed from fire by fire. Who then devised the torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame. Remember, the, those of you who did Dante, um, um, when Dante approaches the earthly paradise, when he's returning, remember he had to go into hell and then he goes to purgatory. The last l ledge is the ledge of the lustful. And to pass through that, he has to pass through a sheet of flame to be completely, before he goes on, where he will meet, be, he'll be crowned and mitered. That is, he, he will recover his original innocence. He will be back in Eden. 
then Beatrice will meet him and they'll go up to heavens. But he has to pass through that, that fire. Who then devised the torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame, which human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. Isn't that wonderful? It's either the fires of damnation or purification. And remember what I said when we write God's light for somebody who rejects him is experiences of fire. So what hell is. God's light is luminous. I mean, the closer you get to him, the more you're part of it. Then you're purified and you go on to his nature. So much of this Eliot gets from Dante. Section 5. And remember, it, it began with, in my end is my beginning. Remember the line of Mary, Queen of Scots, um, Scots when she was going to her execution, her words were, in my end is my beginning. She knew that she was going to be executed. That was going to be the beginning of her life with her God. So, and that's been one of the major, in my end and my beginning is my, and my, and my beginning is my end. <clears throat> what we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. <clears throat> the end is where we start from, and every phrase and sentence that is right, where every word is at home, taking its place to support the others, the word neither diffident nor ostentatious, an easy commerce of the old and the new, the common word exact without vulgarity, the formal word precise but not pedantic, the complete consort dancing together. I've got to stop here, sorry. Every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning. Every, every, court, every quartet has had a section devoted to the word. Everyone, language. Because Eliot knows that the word is the analog of our words, that what we do with them is meant. So um, um, think about what he's just said here. Try to imagine anybody in heaven not speaking poetry. It's not going to happen. Nothing in heaven is going to happen that's not ordered and beautiful till we have faces. She won't be there till she's beautiful and she does come to it. That doesn't mean just outward beauty. It means the beauty of a soul that's been rightly ordered again. Can Oriol ever say anything after that without some element of poetry? There will be a beauty to her words. There won't be a disorder, the ugliness, the noise. So remember, poetry has always been taking us there, learning, teaching us to hear words, the beauty of them, um, to teach us how to use them well ourselves because it matters what we do with our words. So what he wrote here to me is not small at all. Think about how hard it is to, to write in a way that every word is at home, not pretentious, not ostentatious, not intellectually proud, not its opposite. I mean, to to, to, to write something so that each word speaks what it should, the difficulty of that. That's, his, that's been his life as a poet. So I'll read it once again. And every phrase and sentence that is right where every word is at home, taking its place to support the others. The word neither diffident nor ostentatious, an easy commerce of the old and the new. We have to draw from the past and be current to our time. The common word exact without vulgarity, the word, the formal word precise, but not pedantic, the complete concert dancing together. Every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning, every poem an epitaph. 
And any action is a step to the block. We have to risk ourselves to the fire. We have to enter it. Down the sea's throat or an illegible stone, and that is where we start. We die with the dying. See, they depart, and we go with them. We are born with the dead. See, they return and bring us with them. The moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree, remember this is picking up Bert Norton now because the opening image was into the garden. Quick now, quick now. See, you know, the birds, that, that beautiful sense of going in and looking at the pool and then suddenly disappearing, those echoes of the garden. Um, the moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration. The yew tree is an image of the cross. The rose in Dante, remember, is the image of the imperium. The imperial rose, the imperium was images as a rose. It can't be, it can't be anything but the most exquisite beauty. Imperium was a rose. Um, the moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration. A people without history is not redeemed from time, for history is a pattern of timeless moments. So while the light falls, fails, on a winter's afternoon in a secluded chapel, history is now and England. With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning and the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always. Condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crown knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. Um, I can't, Dame, what's her name? Dame Julia, Dame? Julia Norwich? Yeah, yeah. <coughs> the quote from her words, remember the, the, the thanks, Don. Um, <coughs> an easy commerce of the old and new. And remember when we did, um, um, was it East Coker? Um, when we went into the forest for the marriage and he slipped into Middle English, remember? The association of man and woman in don signa signifying matrimony, a dignified and commodious sacrament. Two and two necessarie conjunction, holding each other by, you know. He's always trying to carry the past forward, all good poets do, so that the past and present are one. So, Dame Julian, um, that the phrase that he's, that he's using here, and all, and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be, is a quote from her. So he's once again bringing the past. And notice how appropriate it is. I mean, it's, he, the poem ends on a note of assurance. All things shall be well. When, the tongue, when this condition, when the tongues of flames are enfolded into the crown knot of fire, 
and the fire and the rose are one. When that happens, the human soul will be at peace. We will be with God. Um, notice the word the four quartets end with, and the fire and the rose are one. That's not an accident. I mean, he's calling, a, a, he's, um, calling our attention to the fact that we're all united in this faith, you know, belief in Christ. So it's not an accident that this, the whole collection ends on that one word. It's just another way he has of reminding us of the unity of everything. There is a unity behind these four quartets. There is a oneness, a wholeness behind them all. It's this still point. It's, it, it's, it's God's logos, Christ, the Word, in who things all, in who things are, in whom things are, in whom everything finds its unity. Um, I said this before, this is before we started, but um, over the course of my life there have been times when I will pick up the Psalms and read them because you know they're wonderful prayers. It's, there's a beauty to the Psalms. There's, you can still hear the music, you know, it's little lyrics, so the music is very much a part of the Psalms. I would really encourage you strongly to pick these up every once in a while. You've got them. Go out and buy, you know, sometimes at night because the, the, one of the values is it's our, it's our tongue. It's our language. It's, it's not the language of the Psalms. It's, it's contemporary. It's in our world. It, it brings our world up, but it helps locate us in that kind of place that the Psalms do. You know, it's a, it's a place of holiness where we're in this world but connected to another. So pick them up once in a while. And if you do, no, sorry, when you do, when you do, read them aloud. If your spouse is around, make him read or her. Because um, you know they should be read aloud. They're different when they're read aloud. Okay. Um, the four quartets. Do you believe it? We got through the four quartets. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. You guys have read a lot of good stuff. Really sort of amazing. Okay. Um, I'm going to try to do this really quickly. Major question for us today, where is Christ? Where is Christ? Um, the whole purpose of the course was to see... Um, if, if we could find him where often we don't see him, where often we don't look. And in some ways, more importantly, to feel him. Have the poets helped reveal him and in a way that would make us capable of feeling more because we're seeing him in a different way. So it's not just about our heads. Did the, did the works open up our hearts? Could we feel something because of what's going on? Did, the, did they give us that? So where's Christ when we go back over this? Um, I've got a couple of comments to make before we begin. I'm going to go over till we have faces, the very end of it, just to go over the sequence of things again, because I'm not sure that we covered them well enough last time, and it's too important what's going on there to not take a few minutes, so I want to do that. And then I'm just going to very, very briefly um, have a comment about each one of the works um, just in relation to Christ, to see what they show us about Christ, if he's present in the work or not. Um, <clears throat> two comments. It seems to me one of the great glories of this course, as I think about it um, 
in terms of you guys is what a great gift because those of you who who've been here from the beginning now have inside your heads and your hearts a whole tradition. It's not just ideas, they're not abstractions, they're not intellectual abstractions, um, they're, they're not mathematical. You're in a concrete world dealing with human beings um, that directly involve the emotions, our heart. Um, Alan Tate said that literature gives us a knowledge carried to the heart. Knowledge carried to the heart that it helps open our hearts. Um, you have a whole tradition behind you now. Um, and at least as I think about it, I think, I hope, that what's happened is that because you've t taken it in, you've done what John Paul encourages us to do in Fide Ratio, to bring faith and reason together. Because without that tradition, we tend to live in abstractions in our heads. You've got a whole tradition it's inside of you. You may want to exercise it now after all of this, but it's in you. You carry it, which means your faith has the support of this rich reason, this humanist tradition, you know, that's, that, that's, and that's so much a part of the Catholic Church. Because the Catholic Church is the one institution that's carried it all forward. Truthfully, I'm saying that in truth. You know that they assimilated everything. St. Augustine loved, loved the classics. He, he knew that they, when he, when he, after his conversion, he realized that they're the ones that helped take him to Christ. The Virgil especially, the, the, the Platonist philosophers. So one is that, all that, we, all that we've done, hopefully will have the effect of supporting our faith um, because it rests on a more secure reason this humanist tradition. The second is that if you put this whole tradition together, if you go back to the beginning and put it all together, you see an interesting thing. And that, that for me, I mean, this is a terrible simplification, but it's true. If you put the whole thing together, you, you see in an amazing way that the entire movement from the beginning of the tradition to the end is from an external world inside, interior, into the inside, into the interior, that more and more we enter the inner life of man. That's happening in some way, I'll get to that in a minute, that's happening in some way with the ancient epics. It happens in a radical way after Christ because Christ's call is to the interior. You heard it said you shouldn't commit murder. I'm telling you, if you even think about it inside, there's something wrong. You heard it said you can't commit adultery. I'm saying if you even think about it. So he's asking, because think about it, we get away with I hope I'm not just speaking for myself. We get away with an awful lot. I certainly know it from my, I mean, T.S. Um, Lewis had this one line where he said every time he looked inside of himself, he, he finds a riot of lusts. And I don't know where you guys are, but I certainly know where I am. But if you look inside, there's this awful disorder, and yet we present ourselves to the world as calm and personable and likable and... Christ is calling us out of that. If you look at literature, it's prophetic in the, in the deepest way because it takes us into the interior. It helps us to see those things we don't see very well on our own. We're hidden from each other in lots of ways. Probably, I, I mean, there's a lot of self-protection in that, you know. Sometimes it scares me that my wife lives with me. I mean, she knows me pretty well. Um, I would assume that she would say the same because I know her pretty well, too. <laughs> um, 
We know each other's sins. I mean, why do people get divorced? The answer to that is pretty obvious to me. So the whole movement is inward. It's inward. It's help us to see and not to be afraid. Because we always find a help. No matter how ugly things, that's the whole thesis of Till We Have Faces. No matter how ugly they are. In fact, for Oriole, we know she will never become who she is until she learns to see truthfully how ugly she is. If she doesn't learn to face that, spiritually she's not going to go on. So there's a temptation to be like the, the Jews, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, you know, to seem outwardly good and not deal with the inside. But the whole call of literature is in. Over and over and over. We've seen that again in every work we've done. So, um, so just those two comments here. I want to um, I want to look very, very quickly at two we have faces and then try to summarize everything that we've done together. I want to pick up at that point where, uh-oh, I want to pick up at that point where I'm going to summarize it quickly. I'm not going to go to readings here, uh, except in the, the murals at the end. Remember, Oriole had her father died, and she took over um, ruling the kingdom. And she's a much better ruler than her father. She's far more practical than he is, and, and in so many ways, seemingly less egotistic. And she, she puts the minds in order, she improves the working conditions of the people, she sets up terms so that they can earn their freedom. She does a lot of really good things. The kingdom is put in order in some measure. She's older now, years and years have passed. She's reached a point where she can let go of some of those things. And you know that during this whole time she's wearing a mask. She's not who she seems to be. And then she takes this trip um, to Isur, to that chapel, for or that forest chapel and she meets that priest who tells her the story of this god and it's at that point she becomes outraged because she believes the story misrepresents what happens and she's remembering it the way she did even though she herself lied so she, in some sense she's not been admitting a lie to herself for all these years and she goes home determined to write the book okay so um, she begins the writing, um, and then um, she experiences two revelations once the writing begins. One of them is from Taran. Remember, he's a part of an embassy from this great king who visits and, and tells her that um, Redival, he remembers how lonely Redival was when she was young. When Oriole hears that, she's shocked because she's been so concerned about herself, it's that self-centeredness that we have, that she didn't see. She was too concerned with her own sense of loneliness and being abandoned and being isolated to even have any thought that her sister could have felt the same thing. Um, and the second is Bardia dies. She goes to console Angad, and after a... Um, a tearful exchange, a, 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 a 
the sympathetic exchange of their hearts with each other, Angot says something that, that leads Oriol to say something, and then it gets tested between the two women because it's at that point that Angot says that um, Oriol had devoured Bardia, drank his blood, and we talked about that, that those are the terms of the Eucharist. And they're, they're, remember, they're the um, defining terms at the bottom of hell in the Divine Comedy. The last images at the center of hell is of um, Ugolino chewing Ruggiero's head. And then from there we go to Satan who is eating Brutus, Cassius, and Judas. Why those images of eating? You know, I mean, some people go to that and never even see it. How could it be differently? If hell is the opposite of heaven, indirectly we're being, we're being given a picture of what goes on in heaven. And that's exactly it. it. It's God, out of the goodness of his heart, giving life to creation, and then his son offering life through him, feeding them. He, he gives himself, and he asks that we become bread and wine for each other, that we're called to give ourselves away. So the, the choice of imagery here is not accidental. I mean, it's so to the point that in some ways, Oriol is having to face the fact that without her knowing it, she has used people all her life to feed herself. It's that possessive love. Um, now, it's shortly after that, remember, that she goes to the festival. It's the spring renewal. It's Easter. Just amazing, the timing of this is so good. It's Easter when all the people say he's born again, remember? And after that, that her participation in that celebration, she goes home and she has that dream of her father. Her father comes to her in the dream, takes in that, with that sternness, takes her down into the pillar room, begins to go down, dig down, a hard labor, they get to the bottom of that room and then have to dig down again. And it's in that bottom room um, that he takes her to the mirror and then says, who's Angat? For the first time in her life, she's had to see herself as she is. She's hated everything about Angat from the beginning. She's, she has to see herself for the first time and she says, I'm Angat. So the first time she sees the ugliness at the bottom, I mean, at the, in the depth of her soul. Well, hold on just for a second. It, a couple of things, one is, um, my sense, I'm not sure about this, but my sense of the significance of the, this moment is he has to go down to a, a condition that's prior to the city, below the city. Because remember, the city comes into existence in an effort to live without God. So the whole nature of the city encourages illusions, self-deceptions, lies. We, the city is this great thing but it rests on a fundamental hubris. It's why we do such great things and why we suffer such great horrors. This, we've seen that, we've talked about that a number of times. I think what's, the, what's going on here is that he's taking her to a, a chthonic, a primitive, a prior to the city condition where appearances are taken away. He takes her to that mirror and asks her to, to look at it and, and, and then answer the question, who's hung up? And she has to say. The second thing is, Father's not a very likable guy. Um, but it's hard for me to see that moment happening without his sternness. The sternness of a father saying, come. No matter how much a daughter doesn't like it, or a son. Because could, could she, would she have gone there if he said please? 
if you'd been nice. I mean, there are instances where a harshness like that is necessary because you're dealing with something spiritually so difficult. They told her not to take the veil. She went to reach for the veil. Yeah. And he told her, leave it. So, symbolically, it seems to me, that scene is taking us to a condition prior to the city. It's a more fundamental existential moment. She has to see herself as she, as she is. All the illusions gone. Um, then what happens um, seems to line up with the pictures on the wall, the murals, and that's where I want to go. But what happens is, as soon as that happens, because she has, she has to confront her ugliness, she has to accept. There's an ugly, spiritual ugliness in her. I, you know, I think about our Catholic tradition and think, if the Protestant, if you don't have confession, either you, <laughs> you don't look at yourself because how could you if you don't have a way of it's being answered? You'd shoot yourself or, or, or you wouldn't admit it. The Catholics, I mean, part of what's going on in confession is we're constantly being asked to look at our sins, pretty honestly, no matter how bad they are, and rejoice. <laughs> There's a God who knows them, uh, who offers the love. So, um, first thing she does afterwards, in, because she has to face this ugliness, is try to kill herself to do away with it. You know, she goes to the river, and then a voice hollers out. Then she has this vision of gathering wool, because you know that she, in her own mind, she will not, she cannot go to the gods, she cannot change herself unless she gets beauty. So she goes to the rams to collect the golden fleece so that she can, she can receive a beauty, become beautiful herself. Um, and then she has that period where, remember, it, it talks about her following the Socratic critique that for Socrates, all, all life is a preparation for death. So she does everything she can to prepare herself for death. Um, and it's during that period that she performs um, her best work. She, she says of herself that all of the people commented on how much wiser she'd become. Now think about this, this is really important because um, she's learned to see herself as she is, she's worn a mask forever, she's just seen how ugly she is, she tried to kill herself, she's lived with the despair, and she begins to put herself away, and it's at that point that she does her best civic work. Who knows what's going on in her? Nobody. They don't see. I mean, all they're saying is she seems to be wiser than she's ever been before. And it's during that period where she begins to practice um, a self-effacement, a self-dying, a dying to the self. So even if she's not a succeeding inwardly, out, something's happening or she couldn't be doing the good works that she's doing as a, as a ruler. Um, and then there's that, that scene where she goes out into the garden there's two scenes, I think this is the one. She goes out into the garden with her book and she says that was no, that was no dream, it, that was a waking vision because she entered, it's like she entered a spiritual life, it's not a dream, it was a waking vision. And it's there that she travels to the Deadlands um, and makes her case. And remember, after the, the, finally the judge says, enough. And what we realize, it's really important, I think, to see this. What we realized that it is if he had not stopped her, which was a mercy in itself, if he had not stopped her, she would have gone on forever. Remember Dante's Hell. 
The people are there by choice. They're, they're continuing to do the things they did in the life. So there's, there's just a continuity. They just keep doing it, and they think it's okay, and that's where they will be. It's an arrest. We talked about it. It's a spiritual arrest. They'll keep doing that forever. Or you would have gone on, right? She would have just kept going on. She'd, she'd been going on and not even realizing it until the judge said, stop, enough. Um, and then it's then that she throws herself off and Fox catches her and he takes her to the, the chapel where she sees the murals, okay? Now, I want to I go to that and see if we can sum this up. I've got a, a couple of questions. Go to 339. Let's just very briefly look at each one. I don't want to spend too much time. Um, 339. So Fox has taken her to this little chapel. By the way, for those of you who are here, remember <coughs> Virgil's Aeneid. Um, if, if you remember, after seven, eight years of trying to found a city. He comes to Carthage and um, he walks up on the land and there's a temple to Juno that um, um, Aeneas and um, Dido, Dido's um, temple to Juno is there. And on the murals of that temple wall are all the scenes of the Iliad, the Trojan War because that was the great event. That's, that's history. That's, his poetry was the source of wisdom. You all know that. So he reads the history of the war, and he sees himself as a hero. And when we did that together, remember I said, the last seven years of Aeneas' life have been filled with failures again and again and again and again and again. He keeps trying to found a city and fails, 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 fails. He's had to learn to give up everything. The more, he, the more attached to things he is, the harder it is for him to move on. He's got to learn to let go of everything. He comes to the temple and he sees, and what he sees is this great hero. Now, how's that going to square with the person that he is? I mean, it's going back to what we just said in Elliot. We reach this point in our life and look back and are embarrassed to see these, you know, these memories, have these memories. Um, so, remember, Oriol began with the writing of the book. And there's that passage where it describes, it's like sorting out seeds, trying to sort out motives, and then suddenly he has those two revelations, one from Tarn and one from um, Anset, and then the father dream and suicide. So it begins with writing, sorting things out, the experience with her father, seeing the ugliness, and then wanting to answer it by taking her life. Look at the murals, okay? First one, 339. She sees Psyche go to the river, tying her ankles, 340. I'm too old and I have no time to begin to write over again. She can't change it, but nothing less would serve and no words I would have served even then to tell you how beautiful she was. It was as though I had never seen her before. Remember, she's been looking at her outward beauty. How many of us are taken up with outward beauty and don't see the inside of a soul? And what's interesting here is, as she goes through her spiritual anguish, she becomes more and more beautiful. Is there any way to undergo a spiritual anguish without becoming more beautiful? And I'm thinking particularly of women, but forgive me that for a second, because I know, I think beauty's 
far more present in women than in men, and women are more aware of it. If, if a woman undergoes a spiritual trial and she thinks she's not attractive, what will she, I mean, how will she judge herself? Will she even be able to see the beauty that's beginning to take place inside? Hard thing to see, I think. It was as though I'd never seen her before, or had I forgotten, no, I could never have forgotten her beauty by day or night for one heartbeat. But this was not a flash of thought swallowed up at once in my horror of the thing she had come to that river to do. Do not do it, do not do it, I cried out madly as if she could hear me. You know that that's it. Fuck goes to the next picture, and it's um, Psyche sorting out seeds. But here she has um, ants helping her. So here's the sorting out. The third one on 341, it shows um, Psyche creeping about with all of these large rams with this golden fleece. And a figure approaches, remember, and it, it stampedes the rams, and as they go through this thicket, the, the fleece is take, taken off, and, and Psyche can go pick it at her will. So in both of these, she sees Psyche happy, not anguished at all, not laboring. Um, um, at the bottom of 341, then Psyche laughed and clapped her hands and gathered her bright harvest. So a beauty is coming. Yeah, with these trials. Um, the fourth one, in the next picture, I saw both Psyche and myself, but I was only a shadow. We toiled together over those burning sands. Um, she with her empty bowl, I with a book full of my poison. Remember, then an eagle comes and um, took the bowl and then brings it back, brimful of the water of death. Okay, now that's four murals, right? Um, 342 at the bottom. Um, Oreo says, she was almost happy. Another bore nearly all the anguish. Is it possible? That was one of the true things I used to say to you. Don't you remember? We all, we're all limbs and parts of one whole. Hence, of each other, men and gods flow in and out and mingle. Oh, I give thanks, I bless the gods. When did she ever say anything close to that in her life before? She's hated the gods. Everything about Unga at the temple horrified her. I blessed the gods, then it was really I who bore the anguish, but she achieved the task. Would you rather have had justice? Would you mock me, grandfather, justice? Oh, I've been a queen, and I know the people's cry for justice must be heard, but not my cry. A bada's muttering, a redival's whining. Why can't I? Why should she? It's not fair, and over and over, fa. That's well, daughter, but now be strong and look upon the third wall. Um, this is the last of the tasks. Um, before I read it, I want because I want to, on page 347, after she sees that, and you know that she will come to the center of the garden, and then she, Psyche will approach her, and the two will be together. I'll get there in a second, but I don't want to forget this line. 347. Um, and will the gods one day grow this beautiful grandfather? Because remember, Psyche began as a human being, so did Oriole. But as Psyche go, remember the, the priest story in the chapel, Forest Chapel, he said, she began as a human and she became divine. As if the end of a human was ultimately meant to share in divinity in some way. We know that from our faith. Um, 
Will they grow more beautiful? They say, but even I who am dead do not yet understand more than a few broken words of their language. Only this I know. This age of ours will one day be the distant past and the divine nature can change the past. Nothing is yet in its true form. We learned that from the epics, particularly in Dante. The epic poet is always carrying the past forward and changing it as he goes. When we read the Divine Comedy, there were the, particularly at the level of just, Justinian, the level of justice, we saw that since God lives in an eternal present, there's no past and future, he's not bound by time categories that we are. He goes back and changes the past. One of the things I love about the epic is that it's always changing the past. We think the past is fixed. We despair at our sins. Yeah? I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. Still doing that, still this, yeah? But we know God's changing them because that past is not fixed to him. So in any way in which we're with him, some work is going on. We should never look at the past as fixed. It never is forgotten. Um, so go back to that last. So they come to the last trial now. And um, remember, um, she's carrying a casket, and she has to go to the queen of the deadlands, the queen of the deadland. All the feminine figures in this, so important. Psyche's feminine, Oriole's feminine. Unga is feminine. The Deadlands, Queen. Why? I want to come to that in a minute. I mean, that's a huge question. But you know that Psyche is carrying this casket now, and Oriole's not with her. She does this alone. She goes by the crowd on 344, and the crowd reach. They, it's a crowd of rabble. They're reaching out to her. Istra, Princess, Unga, they called out, stretching their hands towards her. Stay with us, be our goddess, rule us, speak oracles to us, receive our sacrifices, be our goddess. Psyche went on. The second one, it's the fox, in the bottom of 344 and top of 345. He comes to her. Oh, Psyche, Psyche, said the fox in the picture. Say, in that other world, it was no painted thing. What folly is this? What are you doing, wandering through a tunnel beneath the earth? <laughs> God. How often do we meet that in friends, you know, who are not religious-minded? Just a very, very different way of looking at the world. What he sees is she's wandering through a tunnel. Beneath the earth, what? You think it's the way to the dead land? You think the gods have sent you there? All lies of priests and poets. I hope, I, I, my, one of my great beliefs is that you will never finish out the days of your life without keeping priests and poets connected together. Because ordinarily, I think, people think priests, poets, you know, just, <laughs> why read a poet? I hope that's changed in your life. But notice here, it's the lives of priests and poets. Um, child, it's, it's only a cave or a disused mine. There are no dead lands such as you dream of, and no such gods. As all my teaching taught you no more than this, the God within you is the God you should obey. Reason, calmness, self-discipline. He goes, she goes on. <clears throat> Imagine how great that temptation had to be for her because she loved Fox. But Psyche walked on and never looked at him, and presently she came to a third place. When I looked at it, I felt a pity that nearly killed my heart. It was not weeping, but you could see from its eyes that it had already wept. 
Who's this it she's talking about? Self. Despair, humiliation, entreaty, endless reproach, all these were in it, and now I trembled for Psyche. I knew the thing was there only to entrap her and turn her from her path. But did she know it, and if she did, could she, so loving and so full of pity, pass it by? It was too hard a test. Her eyes looked straight forward, but of course, she had seen it out of the corner of her eye. A quiver ran through her. Her lip twitched, threatened with sobbing. She set her teeth in the lip to keep it straight. Oh, great God's defender, I said to myself. God, this, this to me is one of the most, the deepest touching moments. This is Oriole, the ugliness actually living in a scene. You know, it's um, seeing herself. Oh, great God's defender, I said to her. Not only seeing herself, but wanting to change it protect her from this woman. I said to myself, hurry, hurry past her. The woman held out her hands to Psyche and I saw that her left arm dripped with blood. You know that's from her womb. Then came her voice and what a voice it was so deep yet so womanlike, so full of passion, it would have moved you even if it spoke happy or careless things. But now who could resist it? It would have broken a heart of iron. Oh Psyche, it will. Oh my own child, my own love, come back, come back back to the old world where we were happy together, come back to Maya. This is, that's possessive love that we've been talking about at its depths, at its depths. Um, Well, you know what happens after this, she's taken to the center of the court um, and um, um, Psyche approaches her, they exchange embraces and I think it's the first time in her life that Oriole actually loves. It isn't for herself anymore. She, she looks at her sister, and the two of them go to the pool, and they look into it. Suzanne had a nice comment about this um, the other day when we were talking about it. They look in the pool, and they both see Psyche. Because Oriole, kind of is amazing. It's just so tender. She looks in the pool, and both of them do, and see two, two beautiful creatures. And they're different. They're not the same. Um, both of them are psychic. Remember, the God said, you too will be psychic. Um, now, I've got a question here, a couple of questions. Why all these women, I've been abandoned. <laughs> the only man is gone. Why all the, I'm going to ask it anyway. Why all these women? Hold on, hold off on that. Um, wh- why? Why the change in order? Um, remember when in, in the chronology of the story, after she hears the story from the priest, she goes home to write her charge against the gods. She begins with writing and she says, the writing was really important because it made her discern, it made her have to think about things and she had to sort them through. And it was after that that she tries to kill herself, right? So the writing comes first, the sorting out, and then the despair, and then the visions, okay? In the temple murals, or the that outdoor temple mural, whatever you call it, it begins with Psyche going to the river to take her life, Psyche um, sorting out seeds, getting the golden fleece, and then walking over the burning sands to get that bowl of water. 
Now, why the change? Is that clear? Because in the actual chronology, it's sorting out despair, suicide, and then the visions. In the murals, it's Psyche wanting to kill herself, the sorting seeds, the vision of the um, fleece, and then the vision of the uh, of crossing the burning sands to get the the bowl of water. Let's take a couple. There's a couple of things to do. Through all of this, I I had a, maybe a different interpretation. I I saw Psyche as the Christ figure, and I saw Oral as humanity transformed by Christ. And I saw all that going down to the to the dead zone as Christ's temptations along the way and pursuing his path. And pursuing pursuing his destiny. Yeah. You know, his Christian his his Mission. salvation. Yeah. Because he's saving <clears throat> Oral, which is us. Yes. And and I think Oral eventually sees that and that's how through all her transformation she looks in the pool and she finally sees that she has become Christ. Yeah. But I, I may be misreading. No, 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 I couldn't. I mean, I, there's no difference. I don't know why you say I see it differently because that's my reading. I was waiting to get there, but that's, no, I, there's no difference between us. That's, that's I, I wanted to hold off, but because I didn't want to, I wanted to see how you, but I still wanted to take up this question because it's important, I think. Why the change? By the way, I would, I, I would just, you, I'm, I'm so guarded about abstractions. In hu humanity, yes, but I just would not want to lose the sense of specificity. This is a, an individual person, it's not humanity. Right. This is Oriole. And in that sense, it's Robert, it's Bev, it's Suzanne, it's... Because when we start talking about humanity, we're in abstractions. This is an individual person. Psyche is a real person, she's her sister. She's all, allegorically, she's also an image of Christ at work in a soul. So no difference, really. But, but go back to my question. Why the, why the change in sequence? Because remember, in the first, in, in the actual chronology of events, it's Oriole. In the murals, it's Psyche. And the, and the sequence has been changed in initially. The initial part has changed slightly. Is that clear? Why, why, why are the aureole, why are the murals changed? You got 60 seconds, because I still have to do a quick review here and get you guys out on time. Let me put it differently. Does it matter whether despair comes first before sorting out or sorting out comes first before despair? Which do you think, is there a natural order? And if so, why? Because in the murals, it's despair and then sorting out. The, the only thing I can think is that if, if you've already got a conscience, you're going to despair over things. And you may then try and order something out of that despair. Whereas if you have no conscience, if you have no sense uh, that, that there's something wrong, then you may have to <coughs> sort it out first and then come to an aha moment and realize 
okay, wow, I really am not a very good person, and therefore uh, I'm in, I'm, I despair over that, and then I'm going to take my life because I can't live with what I've done. Let me put it differently. Do any, does any, do any of us, does it, do any of, anyone, do any of us ever have a sufficient motive for scrutinizing if we don't despair? Probably not. Is that clear? The Divine Comedy begins with Dante having, it begins with him seeing the sun at the top of a mountain. I believe that that's the longing for immortality. He wants to be with the sun. He starts to climb the mountain and he's beaten back. The three beasts beat him back. And Virgil comes to help him and Virgil's first comment is you have to go down. He can't go on without learning to see himself as he is. So I think the, the reason for the order in the murals is that um, you know that when we go through life, very often something will happen that will throw things off and throw us in despair. And it's only because of that that we're forced to finally look deeply enough at ourselves to get clear in what's wrong. If we're left in despair means to be without God, without hope, despair, that's what it means. So the, the, the condition of despair is a condition of being without God. Because no matter how bad things are, if to come out of despair means learning to turn to God. If we've been living our life looking out for ourselves, being self-sufficient, having control, doing everything we want, there's no reason to search out motives at all. I mean, we're content to go on. But let something disastrous happen, and then suddenly the self-sufficiency, the notion that I understand it all or I'm okay, disappears, and then despair comes in. And, and either we kill ourselves or we begin to look. I mean, then, then we have a motive for looking more deeply. So I think what's going on in the murals is um, we're giving an image of despair initially, and then what I would call, I think this is the, a pattern of the spiritual life. It's in Dante, it's in the saints, I think it's in the cloud of unknowing. We go through life acting like everything is okay, and then something happens that casts us in despair. We lose it. And it's that, the force of that on us, that makes us begin to have to look at things about ourselves that we've not been willing to see. So despair, scrutiny, discernment, sorting motives, looking more truthfully, going to the mirror and saying, I'm ungood. Then the search for beauty. And remember, Ori will despair because she said, I was born ugly. If beauty is a condition of it, it'll never happen. So she struggles to find it. The golden fleece is an image of those efforts that we make to become beautiful, to, to correct the ugliness, to answer it. And the next one really is interesting to me. It's, it's when she goes down to the, the Deadlands herself for a bowl of death, the water of death. And it's during that period, I believe this mural lines, this mural lines up with that period where she begins to um, discern, to examine, sort motives out. And, and she starts practicing the Socratic self-dying. That remember, he said, all life is a preparation for death. She's beginning to practice putting herself away, dying to herself, denying herself. And it, so she's not happy, she's not, you know, she's not, she doesn't see herself as beautiful, but she's following Socrates, she's beginning to die, to, to learn. And it's during that period 
that she does her best work, that people compliment her on her wisdom. So even, even if in her own mind she's miserable, and she is, what she's doing is radically different from what she did before. And then there's the last image, the fifth one, in which um, Psyche has the casket and she has to go to the queen of the Deadlands and bring back beauty. Now my question is, why is that the, the one in which um, Psyche's alone and why the queen of the dead? What's going on in that last one? That, um, because there's n it doesn't line up quite with any of the things that go on with Oriole's life. Is that clear? Every one of the other ones corresponds to an event. The, the writing, the seeds, the, the dream of the, the, uh, the fleece, the bull, um, the sorting out. Um, but this one involves Psyche herself and she has to face those three temptations, which are crucial. But what, how do we understand this last one and why is Oriole not there? In fact, why is Oriole one of the temptations? I think it's obvious um, once you, it's because only Christ could have done it. It's a divine nature. Otherwise, we could, we could have answered them ourselves, you know. This is the thing that God did that humans couldn't. And look at the temptations. This is stunning to me. What are the temptations? Pity. You, you've been hearing me talk about this forever because remember, it's the one emotion that Dante... It's, it's, the, it's the one emotion that leads most to enabling. Feeling sorry for another. Not having the courage to take stands. Pity. Reason. Fox reasons with her, says, what are you doing here? And, big surprise, family. And Christ had injunctions against every one of those. My commandment is that you love. He didn't say feel sorry for each other. Remember, I, 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 did, I, made this, I gave this distinction a long time ago. Pity is the emotion we feel by identifying with somebody else in their suffering. So it has something of our own self in it. Our pity for other people partly expresses a pity for ourselves. We identify with another and his suffering. Is that clear? Christ had to go past that. Remember, I came to divide mother from daughter, father from son. Um, and look at what, I mean, so look at the temptation. Could any human, I mean, and the, the, the feminine appeal, I mean, let me give it away, the feminine appeal emotionally. I mean, is there any more um, dra or draining than to see a woman grieve in her helplessness, to cry, the, the force of that? She, Psyche, has to walk past those three. What we're seeing is Christ do something that humans couldn't. If is going to be helped, it's because of the help that Christ give her. It's beyond anything she can do herself. How easy is it? to walk past a family member in need. Reason, because this is the stunning thing. For, we will all, if, if you, I know you know this. I mean, um, you can get into fights all the time. Nobody will ever lack reasons for the, you know, let's, let's say something's asked in the family and it, it, somebody says no. Whoever says no will never lack for reasons. 
we always have reasons in our head. And pity is, is, it's a natural emotion. It's what we naturally feel for each other, but it's also one of the gravest dangers in our lives. So what we're watching is Christ. Um, we're watching psyche take on something that Oriol never could because that's partly the divine life. Now, the interesting thing that I don't want to lose sight of here is this. Remember, I set this out in the beginning that there is, particularly after the fall, no, in the fall, after the fall, we are left with this possessive love. It's mine. That the love that was directed towards God, even, even when we're trying to help people, so often what we're doing is for ourselves. That this possessive love is so much a part of us. So, as I suggested at the beginning, the, the great theme of this book is the tension between this possessive love and the love that comes from the anima naturalite Christiani, the naturally Christian soul. Remember I put that on the board, didn't I? The anima naturalite Christiani, the naturally Christian soul. Because if we're made in the image of Christ, Christ is at the center of the soul. What's, is Christ outside in this? In some ways, maybe so. What Lewis is showing us is that Christ is at work inside every human soul somewhere, bringing us to a despair. Thank God. Showing us a way out. Thank God. Pushing us in the direction of a spiritual goodness. The labors of doing that? How easy. I mean, I'm assuming if any of you, I mean, all of you, I'm sure. <laughs> The minute we strike, start trying to take on our sins and do something about them, the minute we, the minute we do that, we trip and fall. Because I don't think we can go five minutes without bumping into everything we've been carrying around for 20, 30, 40 years. So the, the spiritual ordeal and Christ's presence in us while it unfolds. So what he's showing is that is we, now, and it's going to come to this in a minute, Christ just isn't outside us in the church or for mink, you know, all these circumstances are, he's inside at work. And, and, and I think taking this form, the despair, the, um, the scrutiny, the discerning, um, the examining, um, um, the seeking to get better, to do better, to be a better person, that takes the form of a growing kind of beauty that's inside. Um, when, when she goes to the Deadlands with a bowl, I think that's the Socratic moment. That's something she can do to bring back death, the water of death. But the casket of beauty, something only Christ could do. But remember, he's inside the human soul doing it. So there's some participation of that in Christ in our efforts to do these things. Let me stop. Any... And you know, the, the part of the beauty of the end is that the two look in the pool and they see that they're each psyche. And then there's that description of, of him coming. And at that moment, as they feel him approaching, it's as if they become nothing. They don't even count because they feel the, 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 the complete loss of self in the presence of Christ. Till we have faces. They, they both have become beautiful um, as he approaches. So it will be beauty answering beauty. Um, I may be wrong in this, um, just as a sort of 
last note. Remember that all of this passes to Arnim the priest, who says that um, that um, Oriol gave him the book to get to the Greek lands. That is to take to the rationalist, the modern, the modern rationalist mind. Um, I ended my first book of the words, no answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. In the presence of God, what is there to say? I mean, I, I accept thank you. I don't know what else. And, um, what other word would suffice? Only words, words, to be let out to do battle against other words. Think about the importance of words in the Elliott Quartets. Every quartet is... Only words, words, to be let out to battle against other words. Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might... I might what? Complete that sentence. Long did I hate you, long did I fear you, I might. What, Doc? I don't know, my guess was I might have gone on. Yeah, I might have gone on forever. What's interesting to me is she, she just described an experience with Christ. There's nothing more to say, and yet she's saying these and she can't complete it. It's almost as if there's something mortal you know, the words still are coming out, and, and yet it has to stop. I mean, I might, if it was, I might have gone on, but there comes a time when there's nothing to say. Um, um, and yet her mortal condition is, you know, she's still, it's, um, I think it's, I think it's Lewis's way of saying that, that this mortality, this human mortality hangs on us, that's still something of it at our, you know, at our end. I've got 10 minutes to summarize. Any questions before we, any, good book, yes? Really good book? Yes. Did you enjoy it all, did you? Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you read it. I wasn't planning to do this and it turned out to be such a perfect choice. Um, I'm gonna do this quickly. Couple of things to remember. The major theme of every epic is a founding, a refounding. Every epic has to do with a disorder, and a hero has to bear a special task. God, here it is. Hero has to bear a special task, divinely appointed task, to bring something to a human community to help it recover its way and its ties to the gods. That's the ancient epic. So founding at the center. If you remember at the very beginning when I started, I gave you that timesheet and lined up the biblical tradition and the literary, the, and said the fundamental theme running through that biblical tradition is founding. Call that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. And did they all understand where it was going? No, not close. When Christ came, did they even understand? Even after his death, he didn't. You know, he's, he's straightening out the men on the road, who meet, you know, and then he goes into the upper room and he he's, he's described scolding the apostles. Um, so, a founding. Every epic's about a founding. Homer, Virgil is approaching the time of Christ. Then Dante comes in and it becomes explicit, but it's interesting to see that the two lines running, almost as if the poets are carrying on the work of prophecy without knowing it. Um, some people think Virgil may have read things from the Bible, you know, the Old Testament, uh, because the journey, the you know, the the 
of the tribes, you know, moving towards the promised land, Aeneas gathering the people for the, prom the founding of Rome, this new... Anyway, it's amazing to see that happen. So, and every founding is linked with some new spirit correcting a disorder. So in the Iliad, you've got this awful sense of honor that, that people use each other for booty. And I've said, again, I, to me, that's modern. That's, that's as contemporary as it was 2,000 years ago. People step over each other today. They don't kill them. They step over them and leave a paper trail. They want to go at it because they don't want somebody in their way. And if somebody gets in their way, they do away. They kill them. Um, so the Iliad is about this, dis, this flawed sense of honor. And you know that Achilles brings in this when, the, when Agamemnon offers the, the gifts, he says, such things I think I need not. He, he renounces them. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He's aware of some divine love, and it's on the basis of that. Well, you know what happens. Patroclus goes into the war. He dies, and Achilles um, re-enters the war. A couple of things here. He's the only man in the Iliad to admit his mistake, said, my fault. I let everybody down. And he's the um, only person to accept death willingly because he knows when he goes back into the battle, he's going to die. I can't think about that without thinking about alcohol or anybody with a drug addiction or any addiction, any kind of addiction. When a person faces a moment um, where he admits that he's wrong and he accepts his death, what's he to be afraid of? That's as close to Christ in the pagan world as I know. And I'm not kidding. Christ says, unless you die... Um, that's a hero, the greatest hero in, the, in that ancient world, accepting a death. Hector says, I want to be a god. Achilles said, or he knows when he goes back to the Lord, he's going to die. And every, you know, everything changes. He, he gives the, he, um, he receives the, 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 what's the, the Shield. ransom, the ransom when it was rejected and everything's inverted it's just all reversed so and once he goes back into the war nobody can stop him it, it's a sign of what happened the, the release the, the the freedom that is given to a man when he's no longer afraid because what's what will inhibit him I mean what will hold him back think about any of us as human beings if we ever reach a moment where we just accept death how freeing that would be we don't have to hold on to the what people call garbage or whatever, we, you know, whatever name you want to give it. When he goes back into the war, nobody can stop him. Two things to remember. Um, one is that every epic ends with a parousia action. The parousia from the church, the return of the king. When he returns to battle, nobody can stop him. There's this great luminous light exuding, showing from him. He, he screams and 24 Trojans die. I mean, it's just, I mean, where did Homer get that? When he returns to battle, it's called in the Greek world, psychomachia, a war of the psyche. Psychomachia. The gods come back into the picture for the first time because Zeus told him to stay out. He returns to the war, the gods come back in. The graves gape open. The graves gape open. It is an exact counterpart to that moment when Christ is crucified. The graves gape. Start the sky darkens, the, the temple shatters. I mean, it's an exact prefiguration of that at that moment. Christ 
I mean, it's for me, it's hard to see. Christ was present in the world before he came. How could he not be if he made it inside the soul? We see image of it there. Same in the Odyssey. In the Odyssey, Homer's looking at failed marriages. He's, he's critiquing women. We've talked about the possessiveness of women and the, the power that they want over men. It's the exact counterpart of what we see in the men in the Iliad. The men want the highest form of booty for men is women. Marriages are struggling. Um, um, Menelaus and Helen's marriage and Nestor and his wife's marriage are the two marriages that we see in the beginning along with Penelope but her husband's not home. And we know that those marriages are suffering because they're both living in the past. Menelaus and Helen can't let go of the sins, I mean her betrayal. She, she takes drugs to forget them. Remember she offers them drugs to forget. Telemachus doesn't take the drug. Why? Because he knows if he takes the drug, he will forget his father, and he has to avenge his father. The great danger of drugs is you don't carry the burdens forward to do what you should with them. Um, where's it going? Nestor lives in the past. He can't do anything but talk about his exploits. I know we all know people like this. You know, you get in, particularly men who have been in, you know, I mean, they'll, you'll just hear them recount these glory days or whatever you want to call them. The whole movement in that book is towards a new kind of marriage, a new kind of marriage. At the very end, after Odysseus um, kills the suitors, remember, and the maidservants, he, he and Penelope go to bed. And when they do, Athena stops time. So it's the first time in an epic where we actually go out of the past, which has a hold on everybody, into a present. The same thing happens with Achilles. It comes out of an old past. In both poems, we enter into a new kind of being with truth, with acceptance of death, and with a different kind of love. All that Odysseus has to learn on his voyages. They go into bed and Homer says, Athena stopped time while they made love. They've stepped out of that epic pattern of having to answer the sins of the past constantly. Listen to this. So in the Odyssey, marriage is connected with a founding, right? A new order between man and woman. And man and woman is the basis of civilization. Take marriages away. Homer was on top of everything. Take marriages away. You know what happens. I mean, um, since the first laws on divorce and abortion, We've just been watching it decline. It's all centered in marriage. Big surprise, here's the end of Revelation, the very end of Revelation. I love this, I love this passage. To me, it's one of the most beautiful passages of the city in all of literature. And you know I'm talking about all of it because the city's in all of them. This is chapter 21 in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You cannot conceive of the new city apart from a marriage. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, 
for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. What was the point of an epic? It was a refounding to make a place for something new out of that past. Honor, that is individual dignity, because in the Iliad, people's honor is understood in terms of material wealth. You're only as good as the material possessions you have. Tell me what's different about our world. The greater majority of people think that what defines them are their material goods, their house, their homes, their cars. The more you have, the, the more an indication of how much better you are. If you don't have it, you're embarrassed. That's the Iliad. That's at the beginning of our civilization. How far have we progressed? Then came one of the seven angels who had um, the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Marriage is inseparable from the founding of the ultimate city. How does Revelation, how does the Bible end? I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who is thirsty come. And let him who is thirsty come. Let him who desires take the water of life without price. The spirit of the bride say come. It's an invitation to a wedding. Um, the church is seen as the bride of Christ. That one day um, it will take its place. Um, and you know, particularly after John Paul and um, Theology of the Body and so many of his writings that th there, there was this, particularly from John Paul, this encouragement on the part of married couples to see their marriage in terms of the sacrament of marriage in the term in Bible, um, that there is this spousal love that Christ has for the church as a husband for his wife, and the husband is asked to see his wife that way, the wife to see herself, and this is ancient epics, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Aeneid founding a new city. All the cities that we see in the Aeneid are, are full of civil strife. People are killing each other largely on the basis of race. Look at America and Obama, I, I don't where, where a, a race becomes more important than what we have in common. Um, Rome comes into existence because of the battles that Aeneas has to fight to overcome racial hatred. That's how the, you know, the last six books of the Aeneid are full of ethnic wars, people killing each other. So the, and the, so the one thing to see, remember Virgil's called melancholy Virgil, far more than Homer, because Virgil saw the cost of everything. It's no accident that Dante chose Virgil as his guide because Virgil was so realistic about the cost of what we do here. The cost of bringing Rome into existence was constant fighting. So what we have in the ancient epics are all these intimations of Christ. I, I see Achilles intimating him, Odysseus intimating, Aeneas intimating, and all of those epics end on a Perusia action. The coming, even the Aeneid ends, the king returning to his home, bringing judgment 
and terror. Dante, now Christ has entered the world, Dante can be explicit. Really interesting thing. If you go back to the ancient epics, they're all in ancient languages, Greek and Rome. Nobody would have, in Dante's time, nobody would have written an epic except in Latin. Dante did not do that. He wrote his epic in the vernacular. He's the first one. Why? Because, because he took as his subject himself. Not a hero in the past. He took himself because he knew that every human boy, every human person faces a choice of whether to be damned or saved now. He's himself, every human, um, in the present. Virgil, so he, and he can't do it himself. He tries to climb up the mountain. He can't. He can't go there without help. None of us kept. The mystical body is a body. The whole, you know that the whole tendency of the modern world is towards individual, making everything private. The whole tendency of our church is with one another. We can't do this stuff alone. So Dante's a new kind of hero. He's in the present. He takes his own circumstances. He has to go down, has to go up. What's at the center of the Divine Comedy is learning, education. Learning to see himself and the larger community of God, God at work in the world. When he gets to the top of purgatory, Virgil crowns him. Priest, prophet, king. It's at that point he's ready to go into the heaven. He's returned to the earthly paradise. All of the ancient epics were pointing towards that paradisal moment to recover Eden. Once he gets there, he goes on into heaven. And you know what happens. As they go up, they start indwelling. Beatrice sees before he says anything exactly what he, because she, she can see before he speaks. Because the closer you approach God, the closer you approach the condition of the Trinity, the indwelling of persons with each other. There are three distinct persons, but they exist indwelling in love and knowledge. That's what happens to Dante as he goes up. For those of you who remember, there's all those reflexive verbs. I'm indwelling you and you are indoing me. And, you know, that is, they're becoming, they're, 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 they're becoming more of who they were given to be and becoming more one with each other at the same time. Yeah? Uh, and a new founding. The new founding now is a Christian founding. The present moment, the importance of our faith, and the call to love. To carry the past forward, what is Eliot doing? Exactly what Dante showed him to do. Um, Shakespeare showed us the, the he, remember that the Divine Comedy is, is probably the best critique of the modern commercial republic because the whole of the Divine Comedy is showing the horrible disorders of the commercial republic. Shakespeare picks it up in Merchant and Othello. They can't stay in Venice. It's too inhuman. You remember the difficulty in Venice is Shylock, Antonio takes that bond out with Shylock and then his ships don't come in and Shylock calls the loan in. So either he lets go of the loan or, or Antonio dies. They go to court. Shiloh wants his bond. They ask him to forgive it. The judge says, you can't forgive it because if we ignore it and let it go, nobody will enter into contracts anymore. So one, one possibility is if you let it go, the commercial regime dies. Venice, nobody will risk anymore. If you enforce it, he dies. It's an inhuman condition the commercial regime, according to Shakespeare. In Othello, we see the effect of it. Iago's the most evil character in all of Shakespeare's works. Nobody sees him. It's a, it's a, it's a regime given to fictions. 
words, contracts. Iago can manipulate everybody. He's the most, he's the most sinister person in all of literature that I know. And he hurts everybody. What Shakespeare's showing us in Othello is that the modern commercial regime is inimical to love. Those who love are most attacked by him. So the critique of the modern commercial regime by the modern great poet is pretty serious. Melville, you know that they have to go to sea. There's this horrible Calvinistic spirit on land. I mean, Christianity's dying. Um, the answer to it in Melville is Ishmael. And, and Ishmael teaches us to love, that there's this great goodness in nature. Ahab can't see it. Ahab believes that there's evil. I think that's that Protestant, we're inherently bad, depraved. They think the effects of the fall were complete. We are depraved by nature. That's what we're seeing in Melville. Ishmael dissociates himself from that. And he begins to learn to love. And when he does, he begins to find goodness every analogy. Linked analogies, remember. Seen goodness everywhere in creation. And then go down Moses, um, Ike reads those ledgers and sees the horrible sin of his grandfather that he committed misogyny with the Negro girl and then had sex with her, or raped her, and produced a child. So incest and had sex with a child. So, um, and when the mother discovered that, she killed herself. So at the, at the, at the root of this possessiveness of the land, the way it encourages humans to use other human beings is the sin that Ike is trying to atone for. So he renounces his property, his hold. So Christ in Ishmael, Christ in Ike, Christ in Portia, the Merchant of Venice. We didn't talk about women still, I don't want to go there, but you remember Hermione and Paulina, to me, to me are two of the most extraordinary women in in all of literature. Remember, Leontes accuses Hermione of adultery and, and um, he puts her in the prison. He takes the daughter and sends her off to be killed. When all of that happens, um, the son dies at the grief of seeing his mom put in jail. And it looks like Hermione herself dies because Paulina comes out and says the queen's dead. Leontes sends Antigonus with the child and Antigonus dies. That's Paulina's husband. She has every reason to hate that man. She doesn't. She, she holds him to that promise not to marry. All the lords kept saying, if you don't marry, we're not going to have an heir. Think about the political pressure on a king. Get married because we're not going to have an heir. Shakespeare's criticizing Henry VIII. Um, all the wives that he had. Um, Paulina's saying don't marry because she's holding the kingdom under a higher power. It's faith that the oracle will be realized. They have to wait 16 years. That's how strong she is. And she doesn't hate him. I mean, they're extraordinary. Extraordinary. How many women would lose their husbands and forgive the man who caused the husband's death? So we've been finding Christ again and again. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante, Portia, um, Hermione, Paulina, I'd say, I, I find Christ in Othello. I mean, some people are offended at that because he kills himself at the end. Desdemona, um, remember Othello does it because they're going to take him back, but they know that, I think, they know that Venice will let him off because of all the extenuations. He has to do it to answer his crime. He just killed the woman he loves. Um, that's, how, that's how powerful evil is at work in that play. Ishmael. Um, 
Ike, and then finally Mink. And you, um, I know some people are offended at that too, but I, I see God at work in Mink that remember all these circumstances, just doors opening again and again and again for him to finally answer this evil that has taken over Jefferson. So um, the poets have been showing us the worst of ourselves, always. Um, we can't read Dante and not go into the depths of hell without seeing the most grotesque kinds of horrors. I take that to be the souls of each one of us. I know that must sound awful and unflattering, but my, my explanation for that is we killed God. I mean, what, I mean, every other whore in the world is going to be less than that in some way. Murder, rape, adult, you know. So some, somehow that's all in us. Dante has to go down. We ended with a work in which a woman had to stand in front of a mirror and say, I'm horrible. Before she could go on, she had to learn to admit her own ugliness. So over and over and over again, we poets have been showing us the worst things about ourselves, what the prophets always did, and not allowing us to despair, that there's no reason, that, that that's a part of the spiritual path. Dante had to go down. There's no way we can grow in our faith if we don't learn to see our sins and know, no matter how grave they are, no matter how ugly or awful, there's a grace greater than them. If we're too proud, if we ever are so proud that we despair of our sins, all it means is we're still trying to do things ourselves. Um, so there you have it. I don't know much more to say. Any questions or comments or anything before we leave? I'm late again. Any anything? It's been a great class. I've learned a lot. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you I have too. Wonderful. Yeah. Simply wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Sorry? Thank you for taking the time to do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really good. You all know that you have a burden now because you have to go out and live this. So I don't, don't think you're going to get off light on me here. It's been a pleasure, you guys. It's been, um, and I enjoyed the prayers together and the courage and humility you all showed. And, and we'll, we'll, I hope we'll see all of you in a week at the potluck. And I hope even more that next year when fall picks up, we'll see you again. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll be there. God willing. Yes. Yeah. I would hold up pain. Just tell them, but be careful and don't forget. I, if you all have, I don't know, if you all haven't paid Suzanne, make sure you pay her for the books that we've had so far. And, and when the books come in, just go pick them up and tell them that you'll pay Suzanne and just remember to do that. If they insist, if they insist, just pay them there. I don't know what they're going to do. Do we have to order, give our names ahead of time? Book no. Are there enough books? Yep, there'll be enough. Okay. 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 We, have a, we have a question. <laughs> oh, so the poor quartet, there are four different poems? Okay. Yeah. Because five parts. Oh. And, okay. So.
Okay. There's four. The way to think about it, there's four voices, like a like a 